0: Welcome back to Studio G. Great to be here. again. It's good to be back. Hopefully,
1: there won't be any digital lags today. And uh, something's wrong. And shout out
0: happens. to shout out to everyone that was bearing with me last week with the sound quality. It's it's hard when you're not in your own space with padded walls. Uh, You know, not not the padded walls that I feel like I need sometimes, (laughs) but, you know, sound padded walls, Mm. um, you don't get quite the the nice warm sound you're used to. So shout out to everyone who uh, stuck with us last week as I was on the road and shout out to everyone again at Marble City Opera. It really was an honor to be able to add to my dossier, to my many experiences
1: conducting an opera. And your opinion has changed, evidently. You now understand the need for the, for the, for the rag to, to dab your forehead. Uh, oh, this. yes.
0: Yeah, there are, there are certain things about the conducting profession that I will not adopt, for example— and this is no shade if this bullet, see, we're getting right started this week. If this bullet hits you, it applies to you. And I am no, I don't have anybody in mind. You did not see me, Scott, on social media with every strategically pl- placed camera and cell phone video to get all of my most beautiful arm movements. Now, I'm not saying that having that sort of footage is not important, especially if Conducting is your full time gig, but what I was really happy to lean into was playing a vital role in a product that still didn't put me at the center of it. Mm. So there was some, you know, I won't say scary moments, but there were just some very humbling moments when you're looking at an orchestra, you're looking at a a, some soloists, you're looking at the uh, the the opera chorus, and everybody is looking at you and like you're driving the airship. You know, there's something to that while At the end of the show it's all the singers who get most of the praise and of course the orchestra and the conductor get their moments so I, I just really 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 appreciated having the perspective of digging so deeply into uh, such an important project in such an important way such a consequential way you know being the conductor and at the same time not having to make it all about me in the same way that a lot of these conductors do mm-hmm. hello everyone welcome to opus 140 of the triloquy podcast uh, <laughs> and having said all that if any anybody has any video or photos, please send them along. I have one video of me looking good on the podium. I'll, so I'll you, have to are pose you a baton sometime. man? Do you use a baton? You know, I didn't want to for this opera, but um, but because there was space between me and the singer and, you yeah. know, all of that stuff, the, yeah. I feel like the baton made things a, a little bit clearer. But the next time I do conduct, I hope to be able to at least have moments where I can just, um, you know, touch the music with my hands, so to speak and all of that sort of thing all right well um anyway we're recording this so this is the last the final day of black history month when this is being recorded but this is coming out on uh, march 2nd so i thought uh, it would be good this week to have a downbeat By a black woman to sort of bridge black history month and women's history month. I want to read something uh, from this libretto from the opera that I uh, conducted this past weekend, Scott, because I know how you are with lyrics. Um, Shout out to Brandon J. Gibson for writing this incredible libretto to this opera. Um, It says here, this is toward the end of the opera when uh, we have the character that's the mother and the character that's the lover lamenting over uh, their respective loved ones who were killed by police you know and just a side note to this opera one of the points is that none of the characters actually have names because these folks could be anyone the folks mm. who killed The folks impacted by the people killed. Anyway, so I'm reading here uh, from the mother and the lover in secession. It says, communities depleted, citizens treated as enemies. The burden falls too often to the women left behind to dry the tears and fight for justice. Justice that's supposed to be blind. Hmm. We know the names. You know, we we, play, we did this opera, the final performance on the 10-year anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin. We know the name Trayvon Martin. We know, of course, the name George Floyd. We know the name Philando Castile, all of these men. And yes, while we do also say the names Brianna Taylor, you know, the women impacted by police brutality, I feel like all too often... We sort of forget about the living women who have to live with this reality. It's not just a headline for them. It's not something that comes and goes. Mm-hmm. It's a part of their lives forever. So um, in thinking about that concept, I wanted to get things started this week with the downbeat from excuse me, from uh, Mamie Till, who of course was the mother of Emmett Till, who mm. was uh, lynched back in the fifties, and she famously forced um, uh, the the mag I believe it was Jet magazine to put the photos of the funeral with the open cas- casket to see how torn up his face was, you know, for the for the world to see. And um, on the thirtieth anniversary of his death in nineteen eighty five, uh, she did an interview with NBC where she spoke to that. So we'll hear a little bit of that this week to get us started. The
1: news media did not publish pictures of that nature because it was just something too horrible for the public to see. But if the world had not seen what had happened, I mean, the world needed this shock. They, they needed it. And when these pictures of Emmett hit the newsstands and people were really able to see what had happened to a youngster simply because of hate and uh, race discrimination
2: I think it really let us see the ugly monster that uh, race hatred is. It's almost as if it was embodied in in, uh, his appearance and his physical appearance.
0: I wanted to bring that in again because in conducting this opera and spending the week thinking about trauma, especially as it relates to black people. It's so easy for us to return to the conversation that we've had here, uh, pimping out the pain and that sort of thing. And while it's important to really highlight black joy, marginalized joy, the joy of marginalized people, it's also important as I'm thinking about it to return to some of these conversations. I wonder if you were the loved one of Emmett Till with the a deformed face from the beating and all of that, would you have been as insistent on making sure the world saw that? Is that a decision that you think you could have
1: made? Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you, when you first played that sound clip, I probably went into it thinking I would want to keep that private. Yeah. But think about how angry you would be in that moment. Of course, of course. And I got to thinking, no, I, I want you all to see what I see, what I just saw, and when and it me- and again it would make me feel like as soon as they started to turn away from it, I'd go, no, look at it, yeah, yeah, again, yeah. Boy, that's such a personal decision too. Uh, wow, what a what a position to be put in. So, man, so
0: of course. Um- in thinking about this, we also can't help but to think about what's going on in Europe. Of course, we're going to uh, speak to the the crisis in Ukraine this week. But when we talk about those ugly truths, as um, Mamie Till said, there are a lot of ugly truths that play a role in this discussion um, about Ukraine and, and all of that sort of thing. It seems like Uh, in the same way that folks can get tired of the black trauma or at least feel fatigued by the black uh, trauma, that feeling also exists when it comes to acknowledging racism as Mm. it covers the globe, racism as it exists in Europe, even in the Ukraine, as we have seen. That is an ugly truth. Do you have any advice or ways of engaging, approaching a conversation that's filled with nuance in the way that that conversation is filled with nuance, solidarity for Ukrainian people and and sending support in every way that we can while acknowledging the racism that we're seeing in the midst. It, it can feel like I, I hate to use the phrase fence straddling because it's not, you know, where I'm very much personally for humanity, for, for autonomy of, of people and, mm-hmm. you know, taking over someone's country is not that and that racism that ugly that the world must see is something that i feel like has to be acknowledged i mean did, hmm. what 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 what's your approach to something with such nuance as as this sort of situation not to mention that yeah. we don't know the local exactly. the, the, the 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 real nuts and bolts of it all anyway
1: yeah and i wasn't even thinking in that direction when you sent me the video of some black people in Ukraine being told to get to the end of the line. Yeah. You know, even though they had been waiting, um, that never dawned on me to think, you know, I, I don't know if that's my naivete or um, I wouldn't have thought <clears throat> right? I wouldn't have thought there were black folks over there. But even so, I, I wouldn't think
0: that they would have time to be racist as your country is being invaded yeah. to act
1: like that. Yeah. And there's so many different ways that you can get information that oftentimes isn't being verified. Right. 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 So, my advice would be: uh, verify before you retweet or, yeah. or or send it along or comment on it or something like that. And I saw. I, yeah,
0: I, I haven't read. I've spoken to the issue on social media. I haven't retweeted any articles or videos. But the I, the first one I I took a second look at and waited before I said anything because you never know what you people know. manufacture. Right. But yeah. I'm well beyond. 5 10 30 videos and you know stories of anti-blackness that's being described over there it's a shame the way that racism in many ways is impacting that situation again we'll, we'll get to some of this in the in the last movement in the fourth movement but even the way that um this crisis is being considered in the western world as, something that's different because these people are white mm-hmm. these people are christian and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll we'll get there in in the triloquy but anyway all of that um to say in women's history month yes there's going to be a lot of celebration of of accomplishments of women a uh, joy from women you know the important things the most important things that women have contributed to this world and we have to also remember the other things you know the 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 uh, ugly truths, the the ugliness, as Miss Till said in that clip we just heard. All of those women, as Brandon Gibson wrote in this uh, libretto, left behind to deal mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. lives of the of the trauma, to to deal with the the impact. It's all very much important to acknowledge and remember. And we're going to dig into some of that this week. Let's get started. <laughs> Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 140. Thank you to returning listeners. Thank you for continuing to support this show and help us maintain our status in the arts ecosystem as True Agitators, both of us, got It's in print. You cannot deny it. <laughs> <laughs> I still smirk at it. <laughs> to, to new listeners, thank you so much for checking us out. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and sits beside all of the other genre, genres of music and all of the other conversations around the world in an effort to make it more relevant, something that can bridge a gap between conversations, communities, and the people and experiences that make them up. For more information on the Triloquy podcast visit Triloquy.org. You can listen to past opuses, find out how you can donate to the Triloquy podcast, and much more. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here in St. Paul that makes sure artists can make a living and a life. More information on them at Springboardforthearts.org. Of course, I would like to once again thank Marble City Opera, Catherine, and everyone down there for offering me the great privilege of conducting the world premiere of I Can't Breathe. Scott, after, um, so it's a left knoxville officially at this point hmm. and it's also going to have performances um in los angeles cleveland and oh there's one other city i'm not thinking of right now uh, my apologies but so th- this this brainchild of knoxville natives you know again shout out to brandon gibson um is growing and it's going to move on so this is a story that more and more people are going to really uh get to see so, so what are they, going, to
1: them. are they going to contract a different conductor in each of the cities then is that the plan
0: yes i'm i'm done waving my arms for now because when i well, tell you i was soaked uh, after each and every <laughs> one of those performances <laughs> i looked fly though right i looked fly you know right. yeah i, mean, I well, think I saw you saw picture. one it, there was one that was one of three <laughs> You know, because I can't wear the same thing every night. Yet again, if anybody has any good angles, please send them our way. Anyway, what what, what an honor. You know, and and I want to give a special shout out uh, to all of the musicians in the orchestra. It's so easy when you go to a city or think about uh, profes- so-called professional musicians in a city to go straight to the faculty of the local university or to the uh, to the local symphony or whatever. Um, with the exception of the violas, who I happen uh, to know, shout out to Robin, uh, I, I hadn't really had any experience experience with any of the musicians. Some of them were students at UT and others of them were just local uh professionals and mm. I have to say shout out to everyone who's out there freelancing. There's some real talent out in the world that doesn't always have the main stage at Orchestra Hall or whatever your yeah. town thing is, but they are out here. I am so priv- I feel so privileged to have gotten to work with everyone uh, with the Marble City Opera Orchestra. So shout out to each and every one of you. And I also want to uh, uh, give out uh, a thank you to East Tennessee State University, Sean Donovan, over there. I had the opportunity to speak to their brass class. Basically, I broke down the episode of Triloquy, the opus of Triloquy that we did last week. So we were talking about Paul Robeson and class solidarity and... All that sort of thing. I play clips from that house committee thing that we uh, listened to last night and just open the floor up to conversation. And, you know, as you say, the kids are going to be all right. I love the depth that we can get into in conversations like that, at least as I was able uh, to get into at this class at ETSU because certain concepts are just agreed upon and and understood. I feel like these days, especially when we talk about politics, but certainly in the arts, the baseline of facts isn't the same. So it's nice to, to have a conversation with some folks who I don't have to convince about a concept about American classical music. We can take that, that we all agree upon, and apply it to how we think we can uh, integrate that in a beginning band room for example or Mm. how or how we approach our music lessons so just taking the conversation and having the next conversation you know elevating what we're doing with a renewed concept of classical music as it applies to the United States so shout out to all of the uh, students over there thank you so much for tuning in thank you everyone let's get into movement one All right. Well, first and foremost, prayers to everyone impacted over in Europe by the violence. Mm -hmm. I have seen news articles where uh, Russian soldiers are being captured and allegedly they're saying that... uh, They thought it was a training exercise. They were told it's training. They're they're doing something they don't know about. Of course, all the folks. That's crazy. I I know. uh, uh, All the folks in Ukraine who have had to evacuate, who have to deal with, if anything, just the trauma of hearing missile sirens. What do you even do in that moment? You know, well, well, what do you grab? Uh, The money in your bank or it's I, I can't imagine. So prayers to all of those people. This issue has touched the arts directly in Mm -hmm. many ways. But one way I want to highlight uh, comes from an article that was published today, or at least updated today. This is from National Public Radio NPR. The title is Metropolitan Opera Says It Will Sever Ties With Putin Allied Artists. Isn't it something, before I start to read this, just last week, we're talking about Paul Robeson going over to Russia and finding solace, Mm -hmm. finding peace, and us talking about the ways in which an idea about Russia may be the result of some conditioning from news media and X, Y, Z. The difference a week makes, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, let me read here. Uh, It says New York's famed opera house, the Metropolitan Opera, announced Sunday that it will suspend its ties to Russian artists and institutions who are allied with Russian President Vladimir Putin. In an interview with the New York Times Sunday, Gelb Uh, said, it's terrible that artistic relationships, at least temporarily are the collateral damage <laughs> of these actions by Putin. Let me uh, let me go down here and name the people. Uh, it says, Gelb did not specify which institutions and artists it intends to suspend from collaborations, but three of the most prominent that have been actively allied with Putin are the Morinsky Theater in St. Petersburg, its a general and artistic director, the conductor, Valerie Gergiev, who was also the Met's former principal guest conductor and star soprano, Anna Netrebko, who appears frequently on the Met. Stage, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot to deal with. Okay, first of all, let's rewind. Peter Gelb said it's terrible that artistic relationships, at least temporarily, are the collateral damage of these actions by Putin. What is the redemption gonna look like? <laughs> exactly. What? What what has to happen for for Peter Gelb and him to say, Oh, well, okay, it's fine. Come on back. Mm-hmm. It's fine. For the violence to stop when some sort of peace is garnered issued whatever ends up happening an earnest apology that that's that's what that's what they need to do apologize for no
1: i'm throwing that out as a possibility is that on the table would that be worth it I, I, I
0: suppose it's on the table but an apology isn't gonna again we just spoke to the trauma that these people are facing i i've uh, i've only seen read about one death i'm sure there've, there's been more than that by now surely by the time this comes out on wednesday um, an apology doesn't bring those people back.
1: Right, right. You no, know? no. I'm just like I'm saying. I'm just spitballing here with you. So, I mean, for him to, uh, I mean, yeah, and he stepped cringe. in it a lot. That
0: is, that is, that's very cringe and, and something to to deal with. But um, anyway, when it, when we come down here and talk about um, Valerie Gergiev, he's one person, but Anna Natrepko is who I want to focus in on mm-hmm. because. And I, let me go ahead and. Oh, oh yes. This is not the first time I'm saying her name on this podcast about something. And I'm not talking about her singing, what high notes she hit, her vibrato. I'm talking about some nonsense. First, it was the the black face, right? Right. And then also the red face. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we think painting our face is okay. And now all of a sudden you're involved with Vladimir Putin somehow in the middle of some sort of war. Don't ask me that. Is there a pattern? It seems like there's some sort of pattern that I'm noticing here, and I hate to to do this. Our Women's History Month. Her music is beautiful. She does a great job of performing. We got James Levine out of here, right? Mm-hmm. Is it time to have the same conversation about Anna Netrebko, considering all of the times we have had to bring her to the front of the congregation for something?
1: Yeah, she's they sever ties with her. Isn't that the story?
0: Yeah, yeah. You, me, arts institutions, radio stations. Are we done with the Anna Trepko recordings Deutsche gramophone put something out uh, with her on it a couple right. of months ago right so is that being pulled from the shelves what are, what are what are we gonna do and what's the actual goal of that what's what's the hope for impact I wonder
1: the day before the invasion started all artists and uh, all all artists and, and conductors that were sympathetic to Putin and Russia were pulled- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can and Let me say this about the Met. I am glad. I'm going to throw them a little bail. I'm glad it only took them five days. And not 30 years like it did concerning James Levine. Right. Now, and also think about they did it without... You know, people on social media going, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, we're asking for your position. Yeah. Okay. So now I know a lot of people might say, yeah, okay. They do that this one time. Okay. So now you watch how, when the next sticky situation comes Mm -hmm. up, how do they act? Okay. So maybe they're, maybe they're building a, a pattern. Maybe this is a, a veering back. Let's maybe, go back. Maybe
0: let's go back to the material on in, in, in this <laughs> Sorry. article. In this article, uh, I'm reading again in a pugnacious Instagram story that has since vanished. See, people love to post and delete. Yeah. I, I, I do everything I can to never post and delete. If you're going to take the time to type it, it's out in the internet. So deleting it isn't going to do anything. The internet is quick. They will screenshot. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, it says here Natrebko uh, said it's especially despicable from people from the West seated comfortably in their home, not fearing for their lives to pretend to be brave and pretending to fight by putting in trouble artists who asked for nothing. This is just hypocrisy of them. These people who think that being on the quote right side allows them everything and excuses their unfair behavior are just human shits. That's what I'm guessing is said. It's bleeped out. Mm. They are as evil as blind aggressors, no matter which side they are from okay so first of all i don't like the no matter which side that's giving me uh president 45 very fine people on good on both sides vibes mm-hmm. so I, I don't like that part of it i will offer the tiniest little modicum of bail to anna when she is basically talking about the armchair quarterbacks dell and i um have really been working on Reading and and looking at whatever news stories and viewing this yeah. from yeah. a you know not a, for not an objective place but from a place of humility when it comes to not knowing why this is happening or what the experience could be like. Yeah. Um, to that, I can't help but to ask maybe a similar question that Anna Trebko is asking or or getting at: What is doing this actually doing for the cause? are doing for the people you know last week uh one of the things that damien was talking about was what is enough or how do we mm-hmm. measure what is an appropriate or consequential action as artists and i think while you know we need to get anna trepko out of here if, if she's being sympathetic to putin and all of that you know i'm, I'm not offering her that sort of bail mm-hmm. i do think it's fair to ask that question of ourselves what is you know posting the flag or removing X from a uh, from a playlist or whatever? What is it doing at the end of the day? And is there something that's more consequential that could be instituted? I think that's a fair question.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's we get back to the concept that we had two opuses ago of the company you keep, right? right. And you know, like in like in 2017, I got all of my accounts out of Wells Fargo mm-hmm. because of their. Uh, uh, pipeline right position right right whereas the credit unit i went to had no money invested in mm-hmm. so it did it hurt wells fargo overall no but i feel better about it yeah okay so so wh- so what so now
0: so offering 30 seconds to someone who is sympathetic to putin on the radio you know and then hearing yeah. their recording it can can be compared to that i think that's fair yeah And displaying values in every way that we can
1: and to Anna, um, if she doesn't think that she should be judged this way, that she should be an artist and not asked to take a position on something happening with her country. Uh, too bad. You are right. in that position. Yeah, and, and
0: let me and let me read uh, to, to that point that you're just making in this article. It says, in a statement posted to Instagram in both Russian and English on Saturday, a day ahead of the Met's announcement, Netrebko wrote that she is, quote, opposed to this war and maintained that she is, quote, not a political person. But she went on, forcing artists or any public figure to voice their political opinions in public and to denounce their homeland is not right i would consider you a public figure Mm -hmm. to an extent well how what do you how do you feel about that the 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 idea that public figures are being forced to voice public opinions political opinions
1: yes yes because people want to know uh if they are going to support you or not
0: (laughs) i think uh, um i think there's a lot of privilege in having large platforms and what did she say uh artists you know public figures i think there's a lot of privilege there and with that privilege comes responsibility. There yep. are people who don't have yep. that platform and don't have the opportunity to speak truth to power. So personally, I think the you know the so-called political opinions certainly when it comes to human life is inexplicably linked to one's personality, mm-hmm. which should play a part in in the presentation of a public figure, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in the arts. That, that's just my opinion.
1: Sure, and people want to know who they're supporting. You mm-hmm. know, not the least of which financially. Right, you know, so you're not going to go shoveling money at a concert ticket or DVDs and T-shirts of an artist that is a a Nazi, are you? Do you think a broader engagement of that
0: expectation, artists, public figures putting their political whatever out there in the open, what is the impact that you think that will have on arts spaces?
1: Mm. You mean, is is that will that have an
0: influence? You mean if. The, let, let me think of an example if the conductor of every orchestra in the country had and, and I'm gonna be hyperbolic here had to wear the t-shirt of the <laughs> presidential candidate they're supporting on the podium <laughs> like really putting it out there. what do you think would be the impact on art spaces? I feel like I don't know well before I get my thoughts, what do you think <laughs> what that impact will be? Wow. Or, or if every public ra- uh, radio host, if every classical radio host, had to be on public file on the website. As far as their political opinions on something. Ooh, I, no, I mean, no, what you no, think no, no, you, you no, think no. the donations will go down or something?
1: <laughs> no, I don't you know. I don't want people knowing that and then coming after me as a I'm a some sort of commie pinko or something. I mean, that's Natrepko's
0: uh, argument here. That's that's her complaint. That's something that has nothing to do with her presentation as an artist is being Are you forced saying... out and she's being canceled for
1: it. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's that's her complaint. Well, I think that people can tell from the way that I speak on my show and this podcast, which directions <laughs> I'd lean.
2: <laughs> so,
1: um, and, and the heat that I take for it is what it is. And you know what? That's part of it. Yeah. So, Anna, you're out here. And and you're playing the game, so play play the game.
0: All right. What do you think about as we <laughs> as we
1: transition?
0: And I put this on um, on Twitter today. I see I see everybody pulling out Shostakovich, and I get it. I also went to music school. I've also read an article on the internet before, <laughs> and about, I have read an article <laughs> about Shostakovich and Russia <laughs> and all of all of those things. The point I made was that there are not only composers from Ukraine whose music can be platformed on y'all's Western-centric views of classical music, so-called classical music. Among those composers are women that you can highlight as we come into Women's History Month. Mm. And that is a level of nuance and creativity that I am not seeing happen. Now, I understand that pulling out a Shostakovich symphony the accessibility of that versus you know the music of of uh let me let me let me choose a name off this list i'll have a um a uh a link in the in the description uh, ludmila Yurina. you know i'm sure Ludmila Yurina's music is very beautiful and can be played by many orchestras i understand that they probably don't have that on the shelves of the orchestra library or whatever ready to pass out i get it and this is what we're talking about when we talk about equity, mm. going the extra step. Um, so that's that. That that's my word of encouragement there. I get it with the Shostakovich, and really, I also said this on Twitter. Somebody else agreed with me. It's Prokofiev, really, who we need to be highlighting when we talk about music that stood against Russia. Because if you don't remember, if you don't uh, remember, at the end of Shostakovich's life, he went ahead and and joined the party, right? right? Okay, Prokofiev made it to death. You know, he loved freedom to death. Stalin had one of his friends killed and then made Stalin write some, uh, and made Pro- Stalin made Prokofiev write some music for his birthday, you know, just to rub his face in it. You know, we have the, um, the war sonatas of Prokofiev, you know, some of my favorite piano music, but at the same time, Let's go a step forward and do everything we can to really bring this DEI thing, this uh, highlighting music by uh, marginalized genders to life. And I think, you know, putting music out there by women composers from Ukraine is essential. So I'm sure this is easier for the radio programmers than from than the orchestras or whatever. But in this time, I just want to encourage everyone to do that to go the extra step try to find a woman composer from ukraine to platform and to highlight give that music some play give that music uh some some air so that we can continue to expand this idea of classical music when it comes to equity when it comes to gender equity that and more opportunities to tie the art form and the people who have created this art to things that are happening in the world today we can really have the conversation in a in a, in a, a genuine way on our platforms and in our classical spaces, Scott, if we make the connections real, make the connections today and do that within what we're talking about with DEI. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that it's the wrong thing to highlight Shostakovich. Shostakovich is one of my favorite composers. You know, he's he's up there. I also am always looking for the way that we can continue the journey, you know, expanding uh, so-called classical music is not a destination. It's a journey. There's always room to grow. There's always something to critique. There's always a little dust in the corners. I want to see more music by women from Ukraine in the mix as we move forward, looking at this issue as onlookers here in the United States. So to all of that, I would like to highlight today the music of a composer named Bodana Froliak, uh, just a little bit about her. But Donna Froliak was born in 1968 um, in Oblast. She completed um, a, a music school in Lviv in 1986 and in 1991 and has music um, that has been written as late as 2011 um, that I'm seeing here. Today, I'm going to share a little bit of her clarinet concerto as performed by Votek Mrozek. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing names correctly. Again, prayers to everyone in Ukraine. To everyone impacted here in the United States and around the world by this violence, give peace a chance. Music here by Ukrainian composer Bodana Froliak. Me say this as well <laughs> while I'm thinking about it uh, the, the the house band there was the Ukrainian National Symphony Orchestra you know as well as I do Sky sometimes we'll pull those uh, CDs of you know that, that features an orchestra so for example we pull the Ukrainian National Orchestra CD and we'll go straight to their rendition of Beethoven 3 or Mozart 40 or whatever so the recordings are out there, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the recordings exist. So even when we highlight the Ukrainian National Orchestra as programmers, as a way of raising awareness, bringing attention to the conversation, bringing our presentation in proximity to real issues in the world, courage, mm. you know, the courage to just embrace some of these aesthetics that we haven't always centered even within that Western concept and construct of, of so-called classical music uh talk to me about the aesthetic of what we just heard it slipped in and out i feel like really masterfully within you know the the quote-unquote pretty sounds that very major triadic music um are we are we ready are are you ready to platform what we just heard you know a little bit crunchy a little bit
1: resolute i am yeah i think that i think that would fly though good Good. I, I do think that that would.
0: I gotta take the temperature. I I don't know sure. what the norms no, are. No,
1: no, no, no. You're right though. I I do think that that would work. Yeah. And because I, you can you can highlight nuance of
0: conversation, remind people of the the stress and and seriousness see, of it all. See, while because, you yeah, know it's you can good, say
1: you can do you can go there a lot. It's good that you uh, brought the stress up because I felt such tension in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't unpleasant, but I could sense something pulling right a part behind it maybe it was the the way the orchestra sat behind the clarinet the way that they did i don't know um i mean stress
0: release consonance, dissonance yeah yin
1: and yang i think it would work ebony and ivory as we're sitting at this table
0: (laughs) (laughs) go ahead What you got what i didn't give that an accidental i'm I'm give the people of ukraine a sharp Mm. um despite what i have to say in the fourth movement but go on for now yeah (laughs) what accidental you got
1: um man i don't know what to give it but you know, we've been talking about uh, John McWharton a couple opuses in a row. I know, and John McWhorter shout,
0: shout, shout out to I, I won't put her on blast, but um, you know who you are. You you told me, you warned me that John McWhorter when he misses, right. he misses. So right. let me go ahead and just well, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that in advance here. And this is you another, give us a little bit.
1: This is yeah. I was going to say it's it's most likely a flat, um, but. It's also a great example of what we were talking about earlier about how you got to pay attention mm-hmm. reading some of these things because some of these paragraphs I misread and it <laughs> and it, it kind of stilted the conversation a little bit. But the uh, piece that he has in the New York Times is called How Being Inclusive Can Be Insulting. And, and
0: before we jump back, just to remind the people. So a few weeks ago, we brought up. Uh, John McWhorter's concept of woke racism, which of course we approximated to thinking, you know, programming a William Grant Still symphony is where we need to be. That is Mm -hmm. that we have we have broken the barriers, we have transformed the space, you know. Mm -hmm. But how that in actuality reaffirms the western construct of symphonies and all that stuff despite its blackness so the nuance of that conversation
1: that it's harmful rather than helpful right right Right. anyway so so. um john has an opinion piece in the new york times and it's basically speaking to the grammys which we touched on uh just last last week week. yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so uh and it's the whole thing about john batiste being nominated for a grammy in classical right and you know people were Upset. upset about Ooh. that. Well, um, John writes here, um, about his agreement that it should not be give us some of it, car- right. give us some of it. Okay, so he likes to compare it to Duke Ellington in this instance, right? Okay. I'll read this graph. One might think of Ellington as classical in that he worked with a group of many instruments and he took creating long form suites as well as uh quick three-minute cuts, but the comparison is superficial. Part of what defines classical music is the extended development and synthesis of themes, and that was not Ellington's style. Pause. Did Ellington, you know more about, way more about music than I do, were there not themes in Ellington's listen, compositions that developed? Listen,
0: I go go back to that first sentence, you Ray, because for 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 me, that's where the baseline effect <laughs> splits up. What does
1: that first sentence say? One might think of Ellington as classical in that he worked with a group of many instruments and he took creating long form suites as well as quick three minute cuts. Okay.
0: No, you see we're we're already off track. That is not why we consider Duke Ellington classical. It has nothing to do with instrumentation uh, and, and what the, uh, the theme or whatever you just read there. Development of themes. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not that the reason it's classical is because it's foundational to what the United States has provided to the world. It's the it's the music that makes up what defines America uniquely on a global scale of music and a global ecosystem of music. It has nothing to do with the fact that he happened to be using orchestral instruments or or whatever. So I think that's where we get hung up again, dismantling the ideas of classical music takes so deep uh you know that the, these concepts are so deeply rooted that folks think the approximations we're making are based on things that they're not actually based on so once we can understand that it's Duke Ellington's space in on the timeline and the mm-hmm. impact that it had right. that makes it classical and not what he actually produced that's that's when we can begin to understand and that's when I get to justifying John Batiste and whoever else as classical music because it's stemmed and rooted from there. You know, as as I repeat over and over again, if you go to other parts of the world, their classical traditions have nothing to do with violins or flutes or trumpets or or any of that. That has nothing to do with the fact that it's classical. It has to do with its foundational nature in that culture. And that's where we are with what we call jazz. And yes, I, I understand that. Jazz and classical, you know, connotatively are different things. I put jazz under that classical umbrella as an American form of classic music. So when we're using reasons that he lays out as, you know, trying to uh, uh, dismiss it from this classical category, we can't even have that conversation because that that whiteness of what is classical music is still lingering in
1: the way that he thinks about it. Mm. Um, He... Also points to the fact that just because Baptiste has this little two-minute thing from, you know, that film, which whatever he's being nominated for the Grammy right. for. Right. You know, like to compare that to something that Chopin wrote is condescending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your thought, your feedback, your thoughts. What's, what's the,
0: let me let me find the quote, just so people under. Oh, right. it's, it's to it's,
1: pretend that two minutes of Sterling improvisation at a keyboard. So he's given. Pro, so he he is saying, okay, this is Sterling improvisation, yeah. right? So to pretend that that improvisation at the keyboard is the same kind of music as a Chopin Mazurka is condescending.
0: To go, it recalls the way reviewers used to go goggled eyed over rappers making references to things in the news, as if watching CNN made J D Kiss a pundit. Listen. I feel like I feel like the anti-blackness is jumping out. Mm-hmm. Comparing a John Batiste improvisation to a Chopin Mazurka is condescending to who? Chopin? Is that what he's saying? That's you how know? I read it. <laughs> well, how, how dare you? How, how how and maybe there's something I'm misunderstanding here, but again, I feel like that that racism, that that white supremacy of the way we think about music, it's it's so deeply ingrained that the idea of connecting all of this to classical music, those sounds to classical music. it sounds ridiculous because again, the baseline of fact and the baseline of understanding is is not there. I often feel like, you know, in the in the downbeat, uh, we were talking about Mamie Till and, you know, just repeating this uh, this process of talking about the pain, talking about these ugly truths. I often feel like I'm repeating myself when I talk about the reason why the phrase classical music needs to be reframed for our perspective and our experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the the reason why I repeat it is because it's foundational to the rest of the conversation. And, and like I said, when I was talking to the kids at ETSU, there was just an understanding of why the Negro spiritual is American classical and why the things connected to that, including jazz are American classical. So that means we can have a conversation, but Mm -hmm. you know, when, when you can't help, but to, uh, when, when, when you can't sever the traditional notion of classical music from that phrase, it creates the cognitive dissonance we're seeing in this article. I mean, even you, as you were reading and we were talking before we turned the mics on, you felt like he was flipping the script within this single piece. And I feel like that's because of the dissonance yeah, that's there I'm, you know something's connecting but something's not quite connecting
1: right uh he goes on to say to comp- you know with the chopin comparison everything um he says that is not what anyone would recognize as classical in any way except that batiste plays piano if this is classical music then peaches are seafood
0: oh my gosh see when when he misses, he misses here. I, I see. I definitely so, yeah, disagree. I'm, I definitely disagree with all of this. It's very problematic for me.
1: I, I'm I can tell I'm triggering you a little bit. <laughs> but and and then where I got confused at the end, he comes back around and says, "Yeah, the, the Batiste and this other cat that is mentioned in this article should get the awards." And I went, "Well, but up here, you're saying that they shouldn't be in class." And then you pointed out. He's referring that they should be in another category, correct?
0: Right. And so so let's read this last paragraph. It says, if you think Mahler is the pinnacle of musical achievement, you aren't listening to Art Tatum, Phineas Newborn, Steely Dance, Album Asia, or the Can Spinner songs. Right. Yes. Shout out to Asia. Um, could, uh, could it be I'm Falling in Love or Tony, My Love? That's just me. Are there, uh, And there are now for our... Uh, dele- delectation, <laughs> you got to love these $5 words they put in here, jazz, rap, world beat, folk pop, house, salsa, merengue, bachata, and fusions, among all of these, and art and participation in them by black people, Batista and Stewart should be getting Grammys for their part in them. So, right, yeah. basically what you're saying is, he's saying we have all of these black um, uncivilized neighborhoods of music that have great music, but Batiste and Stewart need to take their black and brown asses to another category of music because this thing called classical belongs to the whites. That's exactly what he's fucking saying. Tell me, he's saying something different? That's what I hear. That's it's, what I hear. And, and when I read that,
1: that's why I said that I had to pay, I had to go back and look at this a couple times, you know, because it it, it did not fire for me at first i didn't have the reaction that you did so what's the moral of the story (laughs) well i think uh at the end he said classical music is mostly so white and frankly so what so what that's what he wrote so it so is
0: it just doesn't matter that in a world of, of, of of global diversity It's just so what? We shouldn't care that this one space is is all white. That is centers whiteness. What are we talking about, John?
1: What are we talking about? Do you see why I'm struggling with this article? (laughs) (laughs) I want to understand, you know, because the last time I brought him in, you were on the same page with him talking about all this DEI work is Mm -hmm. harmful. You you I mean, we
0: sat up here and gave him his flowers. You know, shout out to uh, Katie Delaney from Classically Black. Katie says, as soon as you give a man any room, he just disappoints you. I got to agree with Katie today. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I got to agree with Katie this week because this is pitiful. Anyway, my, my moral of the story is this is an example of why we have to reframe the way we have been conditioned again. In this article, he himself is saying that most people would not think of that music as classical Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that 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 status quo doesn't exist just because it exists because there has been a conditioning of that phrase again for the millionth time for people who have never heard me say it before in a world of classic musics of classical musics the only thing really produced from the United States, grown from the soil, unimported music, with the exception of music codified by indigenous populations, is the Negro spiritual. That is early American music, early American classical music, the, the, the only iteration of it. As that evolved over the years, we saw the evolution of that classical music in the same way that the European motet, turned into whatever, turned into whatever Bach wrote, turned into whatever Haydn and Mozart wrote, Mm -hmm. what Beethoven Mm -hmm. wrote, what Mahler and Shostakovich will end up writing, what y'all's favorite John Cage will sit here and put in the textbook, waste how, if we could break down, Scott, how much money it costs per class, as uh, tuitions at these conservatories go up, so whatever $400, $500 worth of class day, we're talking about John Cage and his silent piece of music, Mm -hmm. okay? And we count that within the, 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 uh, in, in, in w- within the genre, but we don't offer that same respect to the evolution of that Negro spiritual and how it manifested in different ways here in the United States, including what we call jazz. I really don't feel like the concept is that complicated, but we have to keep repeating that because once that is understood, once the conditioning of the whiteness con- connected to the phrase classical music is understood... The quicker we can dismantle that and the quicker that bullshit articles, bullshit opinions like these can just move out of the way. Because we're thinking about that concept of classical music in an equitable way, in a way that is above and beyond the white conditioning that we have connected to that phrase. Anyway, enough of my preaching. What are we transitioning out of this with? Since <laughs> what piece? Of, and it better be something classical.
1: <laughs> since he came up with the hashtag so what i thought what better classical piece of music than so what from miles davis
0: the piece of music is called so what that's right where's what well what kind of is this from a specific album or
1: it sounds so cool and so smooth this is from kind of blue and this is the peak of the cool period of jazz so what by miles davis
0: I just and you know, is it not a beautiful thought? You know, we, we talk about, you know, all these folks love the word diversity, right? <laughs> is is it not a beautiful thought that what we just heard can sit next to the uh uh the 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 sitar? Concerto, or the what's the big the big taiko drum pieces, mm-hmm. or the powwow music of indigenous people, or mariachi, or the Andean music from um uh from uh, Chile, next to whatever Mozart and Haydn wrote back in the day in Europe, next to the African drum and and the um and all of the the Inanga and all of those instruments. Is it not a beautiful thing that that piece of music that we just heard can sit next to all of the those different classical musics from around the world and it's ours and it's ours and we created it goodness we we must break down those walls we must break down those walls the way that you define classical music is the product of white supremacist conditioning period we're in the second movement where Scott and I are going to take a piece of music that we've been repeating all week. And instead of repeating it fully here, we're going to take the second ending and talk about why it had such a heavy impact on us all week. How about you get us started since I've been doing all the talking,
1: <laughs> Yeah, Go you ahead. Can take a break here. I found this woman that, you're, that I brought in tonight because I did a quick Internet search for Olita Adams who is a black woman that started to record and tour with Tears for Fears in the late 80s, early 90s. And she added just a really nice dimension to a band that I already really enjoyed. And I must have mistyped something Mm -hmm. because somehow I landed on the singularly named Odetta. And there was an article that came up from the New Yorker that outlined basically her background and some of the impact that she had as far as music goes but what struck me about her story is the idea of stepping into a space of coming into your own of making use of your own talent and the reason why i say this is because she would sing as a kid Mm -hmm. and even though later on she called it screeching Okay, but as the article goes on, she the way that she lays it out, it it seemed like maybe she was just not singing in a in a comfortable register, or perhaps she didn't have the right training. Yeah,
0: you know, uh-huh. she didn't, she
1: didn't have somebody to help her use her voice properly. Maybe sure. That's just a sense I got. So so
0: called properly, so called training. You know, all, all, all of that. Things. All of that. All yep. of these
1: things. But. There, I forget who the name of the teacher was. She mentioned there was one teacher that encouraged her to use the lower registers of her voice. Mm-hmm. And so she steps into the contralto space. Yeah. And it's like this parting of the clouds, you know, where she just steps into that space, into her own, really, and comes through with this amazing voice with this amazing message.
0: To be man,
2: <laughs>
0: and let me tell you why. When you listen, you know when you really listen to the spirit of that performance. There's no separating it from the lineage of the of the spiritual. There's no separating it. She right. said, "Woke up this. She said, woke up this morning. What my mind stayed on freedom. Didn't get out of the bed.'" didn't do nothing. Okay. So what in it, so that let's take it away from the music for a second. What does that phrase mean? Understanding that is coming from a black woman. If you hear a black woman say, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That means there is a history there. That means there is a legacy there. So much less it just being a phrase. We have the musical tradition to go along with it. How dare anybody talk about that is not classical, that belongs somewhere else. That's ridiculous. When you listen to that song, Scott, because apparently it had an impact on you. Mm -hmm. When you hear Odetta say that, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. What does that mean to you? When you wake up in the morning, I don't know what you have your mind on, but when you think about
1: freedom, what do you think of? Mm -hmm. What does this piece of music do for you, do to you? There's a lot of people walking right now. There's a lot of people marching for Ukraine. There's a lot of people marching for uh, the kids down in Texas. And you and I have talked a lot about where the line is when we might join those lines. Right. I I think I'm hitting mine.
0: What if we didn't have to? What if we didn't have to march? What if everybody would just... (laughs) It's, it's so trite to say, what if everybody would just get along? We have to start looking at the reasons why we can't. Mm-hmm. And there are reasons. Money is tied to a lot of those reasons. Yep. Conditioning of our mind, the way we define things and think of things has played a, a big role in that. The way that we see each other, mm-hmm. the way that we have been taught to treat each other. That is what freedom sounds like. Shout out to Odetta. Any uh uh, well, well, I feel like there should be a couple tunes that we put into, into the into the playlist. Have you been listening to other things? Waterboy
1: is another nice one. That yeah. that one has, to me, that has sort of a train feel, a, like a, a locomotive gaining steam as the as the piece goes on, and you know that makes me think of the of the rail lines, you know, of the chain gangs, of. Um, he- Let's face it, a lot of enslaved black men who put those rails together.
0: Let's take a listen to a little bit of that bad water boy. I mean, work so hard you can't even go get a drink of water, crying for the water boy to come by and just give you a little bit of moments mm. relief. Odetta, ladies and gentlemen, go check her out. Go check her out. Go check Can out her believe catalog. That somebody
1: discouraged her from singing in that mm, register. Mm,
0: mm, 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 that mm, is her spot. Mm, mm, mm. Well, for me this week, you know, there, there, there's another incredible woman that I want to uh, be sure to shout out. So. First thing I want to say is shout out to Melanie Dotson down at WUOT. So I didn't always know or understand March as Women's History Month. I, that, that is just something I was unaware of. And really? while we were uh, working together, this would be back in in 2016, she put a lot of energy and work into her programming for Women's History Month. So, you know, I I just want to shout out Melanie for putting me on and inspiring me to pay attention to this as it applies to my work and my programming. I'm also thinking about Melanie because when things are rough around the world, when there are things happening like we're dealing with now, what we're seeing over in Ukraine, she's always thinking about what the audience needs. And you know, from her perspective, the way that she programs, it's things that calm, not things that agitate, but things that help people think and and get a little pensive and think about the way they uh, approach things. So I take that concept in times like these when I have to program or think about that sort of thing. And I still think there's a way to mix it with activism, with black history. And to that, I've been spending some time with a harpist named Brandy Younger. She's based in New York. I've had the opportunity to perform with Brandy. Uh, we uh, we performed actually with the Illharmonic years ago, I think uh, back in 2017. Brandy has gotten shout outs and nods from NAACP, has been nominated for many different awards and just brings an aesthetic to the harp. That a lot of people don't really think about. On our way to dinner tonight, I was talking about the way that she plays harp so soulfully, and you were like, "Soulful harp? What are you talking about?" You know, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but you know, in, in the same way that an expanded definition of classical music can open us up to different things, I think expanding our ideas of what the harp is or what the harp should sound like is something that Brandy has not only dedicated her. Talking to you know, but her music to and her performance to, while mixing that with history, while providing something that's a vibe, calming, if you will, during stressful times. So mm-hmm. there, there's so many different things that I wanted to share by uh, Brandy Younger. I'll put a couple things in the in the description. But what I'm going to play and share here today is actually not a Brandy Younger original, but a piece of music as recorded by the late great harpist Dorothy Ashby. Uh, Dorothy Ashby on, a, on an album called Afro Harping put on a tune called Gains. And this is a, a little bit of what Brandy brought to that performance of it, her rendition of it. Performance took place at a music festival back in October of 2020. The Arts Center at Duck Creek up in um, up in New York. A vibe, Scott, and as we talk about just expanding that idea of classical music, there's nothing offensive about a person driving home from work having to deal with the person in the next cubicle, acting like they know everything about Ukraine that's going on. You got to listen to that all day. So you you get in your car and you want a moment of peace. So you cut on the classical station. For me, that is an example of that moment of peace, A. B, how we can expand what we're talking about when we talk about the phrase classical music. And C, incorporating Black history and Black present into that. You're doing all of those things. See, we act like you, you. we have to do one thing at a time, that we have to play prelude to the afternoon of a fawn so that people don't have to think about activism, don't have to think about X, Y, and Z. But those things can be tied together in an experience that really fulfills an audience and gets them to actually pick up the phone during y'all's pledge drive or whatever, because you because you know how to engage their sensibilities and their experiences in the moment while enriching their mind, while teaching them Brandy Younger is doing that with her recordings and the way that she approaches playing the harp. And as I said, you know, when it came to programming Prokofiev Shostakovich, as opposed to the Ukrainian women earlier, mm-hmm. let's 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 think about that as well. If you want, if if you're not touching. Russian music or Ukrainian music or anything like that. You don't want anything to do with it. You believe that your audience and you know how I feel about the idea of an escape. But even if you feel that way, you want that for your art, your uh, audience. There are artists to support. There are women, there are black women to support during March. And there are ways for you to do that in a way that calms and teaches. Let's boost up our creativity. If we're not going to be on the front lines, you know, over there in Ukraine, Everybody under 60 years old was handed a gun. So, you know, that would be both of us, Scott. You love to talk about how you're old, you know. Mm -hmm. We we both going to be there figuring out what to do. Right on. You know, so we can armchair quarterback all day and we can use our platforms, we can use our sensibilities and we can use our abilities to be creative artists to engage what audiences need in this moment while continuing in the conversation of expanding classical music, highlighting women, highlighting black music, and really putting DEI to work in moments like these.
1: I want to highlight a little bit of the musicality though, because while we were watching this earlier, I got hypnotized by her fingers. Mm -hmm. The technique that she uses of opening and closing notes, meaning like hitting a note and then stopping the string from vibrating right away. Now I know from guitar, that's difficult. Right. So the, not the harp, presents a whole different challenge what do you know about it because she she used a loop pedal mm-hmm. at one point as well so are are there pedals like there might be on a piano like yes, something but for-
0: but a lot of them. Uh, really? And I don't I don't play the harp. But if you if you look at a harp, maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll make that the picture for this week. Huh. If you look at a harp, let's say there are and I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, but like eight pedals, four on each side, maybe more, huh. because because you're dealing with the pitches of the strings. So one configuration of the pedals means you're, let's say you're in C major. If you want to add some flats in there or sharps, you have to push the pedals different ways. Mm-hmm. So as you need different notes, as you need uh, those different accidentals, you mm-hmm. know for to for our vocabulary there, mm-hmm. uh, you have to do that. So in addition to and you talked about the guitar, on the guitar, you work in one side of the strings, mm-hmm. okay? So you're more, now you work on both sides of the strings as you're playing the harp. And you're pedaling and doing all of that, you know, and you sound and fly. So, again, how dare somebody talk about what's not classical? There's more technique in that performance and, and playing the harp and playing the harp soulfully and black in that way than half of what Chopin and all these folks said or, mm. or, or what they wrote or whatever. Mm. Um, shout out to Brandy Younger. Uh, only, only, you know, only big things coming for Brandy Younger. Brandy is going to be one of those harpists whose names we're saying, like Miss Ashby, like uh, Alice Coltrane, like all of these people. And I'm so glad to have been given the opportunity to play with her and glad that we have the recordings. We have the material to enjoy. I hope that the uh, the programmers are, are going in there and using it because, as I said, this is a moment where we can teach while trying to get folks calmed down, try to... You know, be that escape for them again. As much as I don't like that, we can we can do that while engaging DEI. All right. Well, we're getting here to the third movement. This uh, week's guest. I'm very, very, very happy to present Brittany Green. Brittany is a composer. Um, a music researcher, a musicologist, a band kid. We kind of talk about, you know, having a band in common um, and specializes in historically marginalized composers. So not only is Brittany writing her own music, she's bringing to light some of the conversations and some of the nuances of composers whose names were just beginning uh, to learn. I uh, really enjoy, was really impressed by Britney's uh, presentation of music by Julius Eastman at the International Society for Black Musicians Conference. Conference a few uh, months back, so I did everything I can to schedule her and to book her and get her on Triloquy, so I'm really uh, happy to share a conversation that I had with her here today. Where we start um, is, you know, we're talking about band and, and our entry points into this art form, and uh, Brittany speaks to how we aren't always a honest about the requirements of entering the field how you need more than just hard work to be successful you need hard work you need talent you need access and you need money that's something that she really lists and you know as as you'll hear different combinations of those things can all lead one way if it adds up to 100 but we aren't always honest especially about that money part of it that is a requirement to be successful to some degree in this art form, in the same way that you can't be a broke figure skater at the Olympics, right? Right. You know, sponsorship or whatever you need. So that's where we uh, start and and we talk about several uh, things. So uh, to get us into the conversation, I asked Brittany um, about a piece of music by Julius Eastman that we might not always highlight or talk about, but deserves more airplay, more attention. And the tune that she recommended was one by Julius Eastman called Stay On It. And I think it's a, a cool tune I've, I've enjoyed uh acquainting myself with it so here's a performance of it a little bit of it by the san francisco conservatory of music stay on it by julius eastman to get us into my conversation with Brittany j green One, two, three, four, five.
2: funny because um like for example especially you know in our communities you always hear pushback when um like let's say a kid says i want to be in the Mm nba and there's always that that pushback of well you know statistically it's very rare but no one ever says there's never any pushback when someone says i want to be a concert master or i want to be in an orchestra which statistically is also like very very difficult and Mm -hmm. then even if you make it, you're not making MBA money. Right. So <laughs> um, I think, and, and I think that that's prevalent, like from K-12 all the way through undergrad graduate programs, like, and, and there's this just lack of transparency about what the actual experience is, if you even make it. And then there's a, a lack of honesty um, in terms of kind of what it takes to make it and how like to me, um, I think in in unfortunately most things in our society, but really particularly in music, you have to be uh, talented, work hard, lucky, and have money. And kind of the the ratio of those four things, the pie has to equal one hundred. But you can have more than one of the others. So like mm-hmm. if you have more money, you can be less talented and work not have to work as hard. If you have less money, you have to work harder and have more talent to make up for that. And no one ever talks about that. Everyone always kind of frames it um, as this like, Oh, well, you know, you worked really hard. And so that's how you can get to these spaces, but that's not the case. And no one is really, uh, or at least in my experience, a lot of people are not transparent about that. They're also not transparent about what it's like when you actually get in that space in terms of financially um and and what's really sinister to me is like i remember a couple of years ago when this dawned on me i was i remember um i was talking to a colleague of mine and they were talking about some one of the festivals they did which is a whole separate conversation Mm -hmm. (laughs) um about summer festivals but they were and they were talking about who was there and all that stuff and and then you realize like sure, these festivals are helpful, but the people who are running these festivals that you're so excited to work with, they're there because they need money, because their full-time orchestra gig or whatever it is, is just not paying enough. And so that is really sinister, particularly to me, when you were talking about kids who may be first-generation college students or kids who come from um, not even poor, but just like a lower middle-class background. And especially, you know, if, if they're coming from poverty um, and another thing people don't talk about is like, sure, you can get scholarship money to things, but can you afford to not be working because you need to spend X amount of time devoting yourself to preparing to get to this place that is still not even going to be uh, paying you or creating an environment where you can kind of fully up- uplift yourself out of your circumstances without you doing a whole lot of extra work? On the side. And then that doesn't even begin the conversation of if you are a black or brown person, if you're a queer person, if you're a woman, what kind of microaggressions you're going to face in that space. And that is compounded if you also are someone who um, comes from like an impoverished background and there's a, a barrier of entry there that you also have to deal with on top of your. Um, kind of minority presence. So th- there's just so much that isn't discussed and it's all just framed as, well, you know, if you practice six hours a day, <laughs> you too can be uh, one of two <laughs> performers in this orchestra that you're really interested in performing in. And then also the, the willingness to live anywhere, you know, that doesn't work for everyone. Right. You know, you have to be willing to move wherever you can get a job. And so there's just a lot of a a lack of um, of transparency, I think, around that. It's a lot. And I
0: will agree that the whole summer festival conversation is a separate conversation. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that one of my big struggles with my bassoon teacher in undergrad, shout out to Lacoly in Washington. You know, I was lucky enough to study with a black man, you know, straight out of the gate and all of that stuff. But there's still those institutional things that. Uh, deeply embed us. And for him, it was the requirement of that summer festival. And my idea was I have to work like I I have to Mm -hmm. pay my rent all summer long. I can't go uh, running around Aspen or wherever people go all summer just because I I want to. So, you know, there is definitely that aspect. But I wanted to connect again, this entry point into the artistry with what you mentioned when it comes to um, color or uh, even, even gender. I feel like at those entry points, we have to survive the stereotypes connected with for example, what instrument you play. You know, when I was coming up the flute, and this was even affirmed, unfortunately, by a lot of the teachers I was around, the flute was a girl instrument. So I eventually did learn to play the flute because I really wanted to play it. But that played a role into why I was handed a bassoon instead of another instrument. I I wonder if you've experienced or can speak to the impact specifically of gender all the way from those entry points into the artistry.
2: Yeah. And it's it's so funny because that that stuff is so prevalent at the, the K-12 level. And then like you look at all the professional performers and they're all male anyway. So right. it's like where's <laughs> right. the, the disconnect there? But um but that stuff is so true both with gender and with with uh blackness or or being a person of color um like i i didn't personally experience this when i started band in sixth grade i was one of the people that was lucky enough to be um at a school where i could actually pick the instrument that i wanted Mm -hmm. and we had um males that played flute uh as well in our program but um even down to like, you know, you go in fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, the little instrument petting zoo Mm -hmm. where you can try out all the instruments and you can say, Hey, I want to play this. You know, there are plenty of directors that say, Oh, well, you know, you have such big lips, you know, Maybe trumpet's not for you. Maybe you should try euphonium or tuba or, Oh, you know, are you sure you really want to play flute? You know, trombone would be a much better (laughs) instrument for you or, or whatever. Or, or uh, you know, my band already has X instrument, so I need Y. And and it starts from there. And we really, uh, as music educators, have to be cognizant of that because that first interaction really conditions a student's mind on what they can expect in this space. And unfortunately, their uh, expectations tend to be correct. but But it starts <laughs> there, like right there. And then to the collegiate level, the professional level, we have all these conversations about, Oh, you know, we need more, um, women who, I don't know, play tuba, or we need more, uh, people of color who compose music. And it's like, well, the people who would have been interested in that, uh, were kind of siphoned out of that, that pathway in sixth grade mm-hmm. when, you know, they came into band and had a certain interaction based off of their, their race or their, their gender or whatever. And then also that experience is uh, reified in everything that they do in the constant way that we talk about how to perform instruments uh, at times can be gendered, uh, particularly in vocal music. When you think about voice types, mm-hmm. uh, the way that we talk, the music that we play, that we put in front of our students. Um, and then the, the way that we talk about um, kind of this desire uh, for community outreach as defined as exposing communities to classical music, as is, and almost it's, it really reminds me of like missionary trips, the way people talk about it. <laughs> sure. Like this, we need to convert them to mm-hmm. without any kind of conversation with, well, what kind of music do you like? Or why don't we play music by a composer who looks like you? Or, or any kind of conversation like that. And so then when people have that experience at 10, 11, 8, 9, and continue to have that experience confirmed, you know. Of course, they're not there by the time you know you get to grad school or, or the professional level. You've kind of weeded them out before you even started having a conversation about how to be more diverse.
0: Yeah, yeah. As much as we can talk bad about the entry points, you know, I do think there are some good things to acknowledge. In my opinion, coming up in band specifically sort of conditions the ear from the start toward a more contemporary sound contemporary musical aesthetics based on you know the fact that you know insert band composer is much more contemporary than whatever is number one or number two in the suzuki string book or or even in some of the uh, choral practices i wonder if you consider starting in band um a uh, an ingredient in the way you approach your own compositions today a more contemporary aesthetic
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, when I first started composing, that's the kind of music I was writing because that's what I was playing. But even beyond that, the idea of a composer, in at least in my experience in band was not the same that I imagined my colleagues who grew up either playing piano or in string programs, orchestral programs, their experience of the composer. Like for us, um, in our band program, a composer was not necessarily someone who was immediately there, they were removed from the music, but they weren't like dead and they weren't dead for centuries. And so there was kind of this, um, somewhat of an immediacy. I also had the experience of like playing music conducted by the composers in band. Like when we would go to honor band clinics, like, let's say they might have, um, you know, James Swearingen come and, and direct yeah. the band for this middle school band piece or whatever. So there was like an immediate it was they're not, you know, in the room with us, but they're not like this kind of idealistic entity that is no longer physically alive or, or available. Um, on top of that, my experience in, in high school, my band director would arrange a lot of music for us to play in the stands. Um, as a part of marching band, my band director went to A&T. So mm-hmm. I had like a really nice kind of um, mesh between some of those kind of traditional HBCU band traditions, and then also chorus style band and then also symphonic band, yeah. which was, I think really like foundational for me and just kind of opened my eyes to music can be all of these kind of different things. And so, so there, the idea of someone writing music for you to play Never felt so far removed because we weren't stuck playing only Bach or only Mozart or mm-hmm. or Debussy or whatever. So, and then that also translates into the aesthetics and the the harmonic language. A lot of the harmonic language in those band works is much different than what you would get in in kind of uh, older classical pieces, and so your ear is a little bit more open to certain por- chord progressions certain kind of crunchy harmonies um certain certain approaches to counterpoint in ways that uh individual melodic lines can like move in and out of each other I think when you have that experience in band
0: yeah you know th- there's something I'm I'm thinking about we're gonna talk about Julius Eastman a little bit but and I apologize in advance for the way I, I get here. So, what you brought to mind was the mythos of Adam and Eve, and how they didn't know they were naked until someone told them that they were naked. So, like in in a in a similar way of thinking about that, I'm thinking about composition as. Music as a composition, and not necessarily crunchy or dissonant, or or you know those words that we attach to it. So you know, with 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 all those things in mind, do you feel like you created music that was later deemed as such, as different, as contemporary sounding, or was it from the start you knew that you were engaging something a little different?
2: Yeah, I don't think I knew I was engaging anything different. Um, you didn't know you because, were naked. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I mean, at the the very basic level, um, just writing things that emulated what I heard that I liked, whether consciously or not, you know, um, oh, I like this sound. Oh, it seems to be that you can create this sound by doing X, Y, and Z. I want to write a piece of music that does that. And, at the time, I started composing really uh, when I was in high school. And so I was like always playing band music constantly. I mean, we had band all the time uh, between marching band and concert band, um, wind ensemble. I did a little bit of jazz band. So so those were the, the sounds that I was hearing. And so to me, that was what music sounded like if you're writing music for instruments, because that was my instrumental experience now once i got to undergrad and kind of got a little more exposure to to classical music i started to hear oh like this is kind of different um and and kind of being like okay well how do i like reconcile these things and then as you get older you realize you it's a choice you can either reconcile them or not and then you kind of start making the decision to i want this to sound crunchy or i want this chord progression to be uh, something people aren't expecting. So then it becomes more of a, a, a an aesthetic choice versus in the beginning. It's just, that's what I understand music is. And so that's kind of what I'm writing.
0: So I wonder if you can connect those realizations to your introduction to the music of Julius Eastman.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great question. And I feel like, um, I feel like I kind of connected to the work of Julius Eastman, kind of around the same time that I was kind of having a, excuse <clears> me, <throat> shift in in um, kind of the way I was thinking about composition. Because I, at first, you know, you kind of start you're writing what you hear, and mm-hmm. then you start kind of pursuing composition more seriously, taking lessons, and you know, exploring uh, classical music, other kinds of music. And so then you kind of go into this space of, oh, this is what I should be writing or this is how I should be um, manipulating materials in a composition. But then you kind of get to a place where you realize, or at least for me, there isn't necessarily a right or wrong. All of these things are just choices for you to make. Or decisions for you to decide on, and so uh, at the at that time when I was kind of coming to that final realization, it was around the time that I was um, introduced to Julius Eastman's music, just from uh, desperately looking for music by Black composers uh, because I just wasn't exposed to a lot of, of music by Black composers in the academy, and I I was like I can't be the only one I'm curious and so. I just got on YouTube and you know went down a rabbit hole and came across Julius Eastman's work and was really fascinated and blown away by it at that same time that I was kind of thinking of aesthetic as more of a choice um, or a series of decisions that you make for some conceptual reason or a musical reason, not necessarily a, a finite blueprint that you have to follow. And I think that was like the perfect time to discover Eastman, whose work, I think, really embodies that understanding.
0: It's one thing to put Julius Eastman's music into a box for aesthetic reasons, but I imagine there's more than that going on at, at least when it comes to his music within certain institutions I, th- I think it goes without saying that his most famous or most infamous works belong to the nigger series crazy nigger evil nigger those those pieces of music do you think the marginalization of his works is fueled more by the aesthetic of the music the use of that word the the narrative he's trying to share with audiences by even writing a piece of music like that. What what do you think is the primary thing that uh, keeps his music sort of in the corner, even still today?
2: Yeah, uh, I definitely don't think it's um, the aesthetic. I mean, because we hear music that is at least in that same vein. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely think it is the, I think, I feel like the names of the pieces, particularly the nigger series, It makes people uncomfortable and it um, names something in the room that people don't want to address with. And then when you couple that with uh, the speech he gave at Northwestern in 1980 about those pieces, that really brings up some conversations Mm -hmm. people don't want to have. And I think that it's just easier to kind of push that aside. And then also his personality, the way that he Refuse to, to perform uh, as a composer because uh, I tell people all the time um, everything we do is a performance. So being a composer is a performance, mm-hmm. especially a Black queer man uh, in that space, in, in, in that time. That is, uh, there's a performance that is expected of you in order to succeed in the traditional sense in that space. And Eastman refused to do that. And I think um, his refusal to do that certainly certainly shut doors for him. Um, pissing off John Cage also probably shut some doors. <laughs> sure. And uh, in that, in the in those um, doors shutting, you know, they, there seemed to be kind of a, a decision to kind of push him and his music to the side. Um, now we're kind of seeing a reemergence of, of his work, uh, in terms of performance and, uh, scholarship, but even in that reemergence, almost no one <laughs> talks about the nigger series. I think I've encountered like maybe, um, one or two things, um, that actually engage with that series seriously. A lot of it's, and I don't think I've heard it, uh, heard of it being performed recently either. A lot of times it's stay on it or maybe feminine, um, some of the other works, but people seem to have, um, the cello, the, the work for cello, celly, um, people really seem to be actively avoiding the nigger series, even though I think it's some of his best work compositionally. So
0: I'll just ask, frankly, I know that there are folks who are going to ask me people who are not black. Well, if I want to platform this piece of music, if I want to say something about it at a concert, I don't feel comfortable saying that word? What, what would be your advice to those individuals?
2: Yeah, I would say don't say it. Um, but I, I don't think that just because you aren't saying the word and shouldn't say the word, uh, depending on who you are, um, that doesn't mean you can't perform the work or, or have the, the work on a program. Um, I think there's something interesting about kind of with Eastman using that title, there is like a certain uh, kind of barrier of access, particularly for white folk um, in that piece. And that you can't say this word. Is How am I supposed to perform this piece? And I can't say the word. And then I'm uncomfortable with the word and with the, the context and the, the concept behind the piece that he was thinking about. And I think that there's something in that discomfort that is important for us to explore and so my, my thing is get comfortable with being uncomfortable and also comfortable with there being things that, uh, you can't access in the piece. You can access the, the sound of the piece, but you can't access the title of the piece and that's okay. And explore that. I think that's a beautiful place for conversation. Um, but people just don't seem to want to engage with that and even more so
0: i think the point is often missed because of the shock value of the title as to what eastman was talking about you know we can we can go back to that lecture but i feel like you know, the majority of the so-called classical field and the presenters therein, they can't even speak to that. I, I, I sort of feel like it's a disservice to the composition to just play it and not at least have some sort of conversational understanding as to what mm-hmm. he meant by using that word. Is there a streamlined or or elevator pitch you have uh, when it comes to the, the purpose of the piece and the purpose of the use of, of that N-word?
2: Yeah, um, I think part of the piece, and I mean, I don't necessarily think Eastman intended it this way, but I think that speech he gave at Northwestern right before the premiere of these pieces is as much a part of the performance of them as the musical material itself, um, because it really kind of contextualizes what Eastman was thinking of these pieces, and then also the way in which he was thinking of the word nigger. Um, he defines it as like the ground of something, and he talks about, uh, you know, the American economy and, and the nigger being the ground of that. And I think that's really powerful, especially when you put it in the context with, say, evil nigger, um, which is for four hands, two pianos. And so you're looking at the, the physical space. On the stage that Eastman is demanding, with this instrumentation, the um, labor force of performance that he's demanding for pianists, thirty-minute piece, and they're just playing these fast, repetitive, repeated pitches. And it—I mean, I haven't played the piece as a pianist. I'm not a pianist, but it looks exhausting to play. And (laughs) so I feel like that's such an interesting commentary about what does it mean. To, to listen to this music and watch it perform uh, this piece that looks very laborious under the context of being called an evil nigger, nigger as defined as the ground of something, thinking about it in context of uh, the economy and capitalism. And I think that that is as much a, a part of the piece as the musical material itself. Um, something that I, I, I've seen that's really powerful is uh, the Otolith Group. Uh, did a video uh, that features the piece and it's book ended by these two um, readings of that speech that Eastman gave. And each reading is uh, kind of done dramatically in a different way to kind of contextualize the music itself differently um, at the beginning of the video. And then at the end, when you hear the, the reading of the speech again, in this kind of different dramatic uh, tint and, and really fascinating work. And I think that an approach like that to the performance of these pieces is really interesting and fascinating and really kind of um, challenges the audience to really think about the musical material, think about what Eastman was trying to say in a way that is more than just, oh, this is like a very compelling piece of music to listen to.
0: Mm -hmm. And you did mention other pieces by Eastman. So, you know, to to sort of get us into the final leg of, of this conversation, I wonder what you think about the aversion to that piece of music and the relative comfort with pieces like Feminine and what that says about creating art at the intersection of marginalized race and marginalized gender. It seems like there are so many perspectives that are missing if one of those ingredients is missing.
2: Yeah. I think that just speaks to in general, um, Uh, an ease that people have, and not just in music, I think just generally speaking in society, people seem to a certain extent seem to have more ease in discussing um, gender marginalization to an extent um, within a binary concept. Uh, So specifically um, thinking about um, womanhood or femininity as a marginalization, people seem more comfortable comparatively having those conversations, then um, conversations about race or conversations where um, you're looking at multiple intersections um, of identity or even uh, conversations about gender that extend past a binary. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that people just seem to, to have an easier time uh, dealing with that. And I wonder if, if the same rings true for, um, Gay gorilla. I'm not sure how much that, that sure. piece is being performed, uh, but I wonder if if that too is also one that seems to be being performed more often. Um, the one I see performed most often is Stay On It, which doesn't, well, it sort of deals with, with some of that stuff, um, but it, it's easy to compartmentalize that part of the piece. For example, if you don't include the poem uh, that goes with the piece, then it's just this kind of indeterminate piece uh, that you can play. And you don't have to kind of deal with any of that stuff. You can just deal with the music. And I think that um, people are just afraid to deal with things beyond the music. And then I think some people um, mean well and think that um, the best way to approach music by someone like Julius Eastman is, oh, well, let's just deal with the music like we would with um, Brahms or or whoever else. But I think that that's really a disservice and and really kind of speaks to this kind of idea that that seems to float around in in the music field, that anything that addresses something beyond the sound of the music itself is secondary or less than, or uh, any music that requires that or, or demands the audience to engage with something outside of the sound is um, a piece that is less than and is not kind of um, up to the standard of where classical music should be. And so I think that that's something we have to push back against, too, in order to peel back the layers and grow into this uh, deeper understanding of the work of Eastman and also the work of other people as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, because the sound is the culture. You mentioned Brahms; he just didn't write a set of dances. He wrote a set of Hungarian dances, and exactly. that is very significant. And that plays a role into what people hear and how we rehearse it, and and all of those things. Um, but you know, moving back to you as a composer, as a as a music creator, as we continue to stack all of these intersections, you know, blackness uh womanhood you know folks uh with uh, queer identities you know different abilities disability all, all as we as we stack those things on top of each other is it possible for a composer to be neutral or apolitical do, do you consider the music you create considering the ecosystem that we live in as neutral or apolitical or 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 whatever you know what word we're looking for here
2: yeah, I don't think it's possible to be apolitical. Um, your intent as a composer may not be some sort of overt political message, but the the fact that you, whoever you are, showing up in the world in whatever way that you do, are writing a piece of music is political in some way. Um, for me as a Black woman, even if I'm writing a piece, I could be writing a piece about the flowers outside of my home, but the fact that I am right as a black woman and writing a classical piece of music or a contemporary piece of music for instrumentalists is a political statement in itself. Um, also looking at, you know, who has the, the time and the resources to sit around all day and write music? You know, not mm-hmm. everyone is fortunate enough to do that. And that is a political statement. The fact that some people have the means to write music. And other people do not um, in terms of time and, and the, the finances to not have to be working another job or, or something like that in the time in which you're writing music. So I think that uh, we really should get away from this idea that there's apolitical music because it, it doesn't exist, um, not in our society. And then going back to what you were saying about Brahms, it's not as if uh, these masterwork composers that, that people... Um, kind of love to harken back to weren't doing these things as well. You know, this is not something new. It's just taking a different uh, face because we're in a different time in society. And so I just always find it really odd when people insist on, oh, well, music is not political or it shouldn't be political. And I think that if we engaged with that, if we um, stopped denying that, that would then help the issues we have in terms of diversity, when people ask, well, why don't we have any, um, why don't we have a diverse uh, set of applicants for our DMA program? Well, your inability to see music as political is preventing us from allowing a diverse group of people to start in fifth grade, for example. And then by the time, you know, you're getting to DMA stuff, like people have kind of gone in a different direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've kind of, answer the question I was going to ask you next, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. When we're seeing across many fields, including music, um, a refocusing on not only marginalized race and identity, but marginalized gender and those things together. So, As music schools, political institutions, whatever, continue to focus more on uh, platforming and celebrating Black women, what are they getting wrong? What What are they not understanding? We still see a field where most of the women who are being engaged are white, after all.
2: Yeah, I think that um, for one, there could be more focus on um, specifically naming uh, these kind of multiple marginalized identities. So instead of saying, "Oh, we're specifically looking to champion," women be more specific. We're specifically looking to champion Black women, or it could even be women with an emphasis on Black women or uh, people who um, do not identify as uh, cisgender males or or whatever the case may be. So I think that's one thing. Um, the uh, Because I see a lot of times there's like Oh, we're interested in um, working with a black composer, for example, or we're interested in working with a white composer or a woman composer. And so it's like, you know, what about people who kind of um, fall in between those two things? Mm -hmm. The other thing is um, something that I feel like we're really, really missing is there's not enough emphasis on diversity in the K through 12 space, Because I feel like a large problem is, you know, people aren't even making it to the the place where they would be looking to be commissioned by such and such ensemble, or they're looking to perform at such and such place because they're getting weeded out way before that from years of just um, microaggressions in that space, uh, not seeing uh, other performers, composers, conductors, who look like them, not engaging with music um, beyond kind of a certain scope. So, I think that that's the other thing, too. How are we targeting our diversity efforts towards younger students and not just in, oh, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to reform, but we'll give you the tools you need to, to move further if that's something you're interested in, whether it be like instruments, lessons, things like that. Um, and then also, caring for the space that we're asking people to enter into. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you'll encounter something where people are looking to work with uh, black composers, for example, or black performers. And that's great. But then they get in that space and it's a very toxic, very uh, negative space full of microaggressions. And it's like, well, I don't even want to be in this space So does it matter that you're kind of giving me an opportunity? So I think that that's the next step that we need to really focus on is how can we curate spaces that are welcoming to people once they get there? And a big part of that is also expanding what we are considering as viable music in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And, And that can be aesthetically, that can be in terms of genre Um, that can be in terms of, um, kind of the demands of the piece. Are we open to improvisation? How are we classifying improvisation versus indeterminacy, for example, which is a very racialized kind of dividing line, in my opinion. So there's a lot of other things kind of at play that we aren't really focusing on my, in my experience, I've seen people mostly focus on just getting people in the room, which is a good first step, but no one wants to be in a room that's toxic, you right. know? So <laughs> how are we like curating the room itself so that when we get people in the room, it's a place they want to stay. It's a place where they feel like they have a say and they're not just, they're supposed to be, Oh, thank you so much for letting me in the, you know, can they actually have a say on what's going on, what pieces you're, they're performing, how they're composing the music? Like, do they have a say in that or should they just be thankful they're there? And so I think we have to investigate that too.
0: So to the funders, curators, gatekeepers who don't have toxic spaces—you know, spaces that you may be interested in engaging—how can they commission you? How can they find you and 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 uh, and platform what you're doing?
2: Yeah, they can reach out to me uh, via email at brit b r i t t at Green dot com and uh, also my website. Uh, which is com as well so to loop this all the way back around to the conversation we were
0: having about band and you know considering the way that it conditioned so many of our ears toward more contemporary aesthetics from the beginning how can we do the same for today's audiences there are a lot of people who you know are you know maybe even black folks who are curious about what goes on in the concert hall They may be able to sit through a Beethoven symphony, but not necessarily sit through a Britney Green composition in the same way with, you know, that same familiarity when it comes to just general aesthetic. What do you think we need to do to sort of shift general audiences toward a more contemporary sound when they consider so-called classical spaces?
2: Yeah. I think just being more open to um, the space itself being different, um, I, th- I feel like a lot of kind of hesitancy people have is kind of the, the cultural norms. Once you walk into a concert hall and then compound that with, I'm also hearing a contemporary piece and I'm not quite sure sonically what's going on and how to react. So I think just being open to um, having music performed in different venues or having, um, more uh, relaxed kind of uh, concert series. Uh, Something that I find really, really nice is um, kind of lecture concerts um, where people get a chance to engage with the performer or the composer or both have conversations about the music. And it, it doesn't have to be a long, like uh, hour length lecture. But even if it's just like a five minute kind of introduction to the piece, I find that that helps contextualize um, the music that people are about to hear. And they tend to uh, appreciate it more because they kind of have a roadmap to help them navigate that. Um, You know, people write program notes all the time and we assume people read them, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes it's just nice to have a living face speaking to you, kind of talking about the music and, and kind of being open to, to engaging, uh, with the audience in that way. I've even, uh, been to some concerts where, uh, and I, I felt like this was really effective, um, where, uh, the composer introduced the piece, uh, the piece was performed and then the composer came back up and kind of talked a little bit more about the piece and kind of, uh, in a few questions from the audience and then people got to hear the piece again after the, the context of the conversation that they just had together. And so that kind of gives people a roadmap and kind of contextualizes what they hear, but then also invites them to be a part of the music process instead of just observing the music happening. And I think that that's something that's really important, especially in 2022 people are used to being able to engage with whatever art or entertainment they're interacting with and not simply witness it happen kind of from afar. So any situation where we can invite people into that process, even down to uh, installations or things where people can actually be a part of the music making itself, any kind of way to invite the audience in I think is really helpful.
0: Composition there by Brittany J Green called "Blue Dream." So Scott, in addition to hearing the instruments and uh, different electronic sounds, where we're mixing all sorts of things, and as much as people might try to challenge that aspect, the electronic aspect of music within classical, you can even go back to Respighi. I believe it's it's either I think it's "Fountains of Rome." In the third movement of that, there's a, a cue for bird sounds like the you recording bet. of bird. I, I yeah. think that's uh, fountains of Rome, you know? So even back in the European catalog in the so-called traditional catalog, you have examples of that. And we have composers out here, uh, like Brittany, like Brittany J green, taking that concept and taking it to the next level and really engaging something more contemporary. So I, th- I just think it's really cool to uh, be able to have that music and to have these living composers with, uh, this, this, living perspective on, on the art form to share you know something else I think that could be offered in this time where people are looking for musical peace and, and that sort of thing mm. uh, one thing I wanted to throw at you uh, Brittany and I talked about program notes I love to ask living composers about program notes because the uh, opinions vary across the board, as, as as they should. I just like to get different people's opinions. One of the things that uh, Brittany said to that point was that, to some extent, you have to play to your audience if you want to make some sort of connection with them. So, you know, program notes can be a means for your audience to have some sort of perspective and to, and to understand. Um, working in the radio field, as you begin to see, uh, hopefully, your playlists expanded and more contemporary sounds coming through. What do you feel like you need from artists to get something across to audiences to to help you help their message be heard by the millions of people you're speaking to?
1: Yeah, something beyond just where you went to school and where you grew up. And all so, that. So, so
0: your bio is cute. Yeah, but. <laughs> right. What,
1: what I want to know is, what were you thinking when the light bulb went on for this piece of music? Mm. What led you to that? Um, was it a person? Did you see a certain landscape? Uh, was there something on TV that sparked something from history? Mm-hmm. I, I'm I, I feel like I'm left <clears throat> mainly with these new recordings that are coming out with pieces that I haven't heard before. I I need to know those things because you know, there there isn't the website to go to or the or the jacket notes or anything like you're talking about. Uh, and, that you like and, to use, but. and
0: some people will argue that, well, there wasn't a process, or this wasn't the product of emotion. I just sat down and wrote something, and this is what happened. That's a story too. That that's that, that is how the piece of music was born. So I'm I'm with you.
1: I'm with you. That's the job of the That's the job of the curator is to make it relevant somehow. Mm-hmm. So if that was the answer that I got in that instance, I would immediately start building out like. You know what it's like this time of the, at, when you hit this point of the winter. Come on, giving us the breaks.
0: I wish I had some bedroom red, uh, bed, bed <laughs> bed ready, bedroom. bed music ready for you, bed music ready for you.
1: No, but I would, I would immediately start trying to frame it that way. Like you know how you get when it's still too cold for you to go out and do the things you really want to do, but you, you know, you're sick of looking at the person next to you, mm-hmm. waking up with that same breath. You know, you just, just, you're just through. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what this composer said he was thinking about, uh-huh. or she was thinking yeah. about, or they yeah. were thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that is something that's a thread to grab onto. But yeah, if you could tell me, if you could just write down something about that day, about what was on your mind. Yeah. Wh- who were you thinking about? And you know, with, with all of that said, I will also
0: affirm the music creators, the composers who. Don't feel obliged to tell a story. So, what my responsibility is then, I would, I would, I would feel is to listen to that and tell the audience, "Well, this is, you know, how this makes me, or this is what it makes me think about, it, or whatever." So, see for yourself. The composer left it open for you. So, sure. I, so, I affirm that side of it as well. Um, but, but I am about offering audiences some some sort of of, of context. Mm-hmm. So, to that. As we get into this uh, fourth movement, I want to share another Brittany J. Green composition. And I'll actually read what um, she has here. This piece is called Portraits for Piano. Uh, She says, Portraits is a 5 movement piano suite. Movements are based on a series of poems by Bessie Irene that depict people we all know. So as you listen to this, think about a person you know. See who it reminds you of. And we'll take a listen as we get into the fourth movement of this Opus of Trilogy. So to affirm both sides of the conversation we were just having, yes, notes about some program notes about what we just heard are definitely useful when portraying something to an audience. And, you know, they 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 can benefit from knowing the circumstances under which that piece of music was written. Again, as I I read earlier, based on poems by uh, Bessie Irene and from that music we just heard. You can spin a yarn. You can talk about something or someone that reminds you of. So, you know, the, both, both of those things are both of those things can be true. Right. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're here in the fourth movement. There are a couple things that I just want to make sure that I speak to. Um, first and foremost, the state of Texas is doing it again. And with everything that's going on in Ukraine, it's been easy for this bit of news to to fall under the radar. I want to make sure the folks know what's going on. I'm reading here from Texas Tribune. It says transgender Texas kids are terrified after governor orders that parents be investigated for child abuse. It says here, um, It makes me feel who I truly am. I don't feel singled out for not being like other girls in school anymore, Adeline said. It's just very special for me that my mom takes me all the way over there. Adeline, who stands tall at five feet five and is outspoken in class, had been having panic attacks in school as she approached puberty. After she started seeing the doctors in North Dallas, the attacks stopped. But last week, the panic attack started again when Republican Governor Greg Abbott, seven days before the GOP primary election, in which he's being accused of not being conservative enough, ordered state child welfare, welfare officials to launch child abuse investigations on reports of transgender kids receiving gender affirming care. We all had to face the brunt, and go through the trauma of puberty and what that did to our bodies, to our minds, our relationships with our friends, our families. Add being trans on top of that, and you already have enough to deal with. These young people have enough to deal with. Now, these young people have to know and understand that the so-called grownups in the in the Capitol building basically want them dead. I mean, what else are mm-hmm. we supposed to say? Send their send their parents to jail? Uh, say that their parents are are uh, abusing their children for affirming their gender, their gender identity, their their truth we can we we can preach against this all day but you know what what i just want to say is that this this is not we should not see this as an opportunity for arts organizations i believe texas arts institutions have a responsibility to speak something out in the in the issue in ukraine even switzerland so-called neutral switzerland has moved away from that abstract stance mm-hmm. And done something, right? So arts institutions need to do the very same thing, especially arts institutions down there in Texas. We talk about engaging audiences, engaging communities. If I were the head of any arts institution, I would see it as my responsibility to speak up. To something like this, to to have some sort of day in the arts, or or to give money to uh, some organization that's trying to fight against this, or or create safe spaces for these
1: trans youth. I also, while we're on this topic, let me sidebar here. Did you hear about the "Don't Say Gay" down in Florida? No, I haven't. That passed. Florida House representatives passed a controversial controversial bill last Thursday limiting when and how teachers and school staff can discuss gender and sexual orientation in the classroom. Classroom. Wow. wow. So basically don't ask, don't tell 2.0. So
0: let's so let's tie that to the arts. If you happen to learn about Tchaikovsky or Bernstein or Copeland or Julius Eastman, who we talked about today, mm-hmm. or 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 any of these folks, that that is just part of their lives that we need to pretend didn't exist. I said that, that that's what that's what this right. don't say gay is is trying to get teachers to do. Right, that's not what I do. Listen, arts institutions, you have a responsibility. The time for being neutral is over. There is no neutral. And with everything that's going on over in Europe, these are things that we have to also remember that we also have to respond to. So as you find your uh, recordings of Shostakovich, of Prokofiev, um, of all the Ukrainian composers, the Ukrainian women composers, the platform to engage what's going on in the world, you have a responsibility to engage what's happening here on, on, uh, on domestic soil and the hate that's being put on marginalized people the perpetuation of hate even children Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you have a responsibility arts institutions let's do something let's pick it up i'm using my platform to bring awareness to it use your platforms to do something uh the next little triloquy here before we uh head out i'm I'm just going to play a a couple clips scott i'm I'm not even going to say anything I'm just going to bear some material let's take a listen
1: but this isn't a place with all due respect um, you know like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades you know this is a relatively civilized uh, relatively European I have to choose those words
0: Karen. relatively civilized okay let's see who else had something to say here's another little clip he was he was, he was almost close Syria. these are
1: refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, Christians, so white.
0: Okay, so all they're Christian and they're white, so that means we actually need to pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine. Mm. Let's take another listen to something else. The
1: unthinkable has happened to them, and this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe.
0: Okay, let's, let's let's try yet another.
2: What's
1: compelling is just looking at them the way they're dressed. These are prosperous. I'm not to use the expression. These are prosperous, middle-class people. These are not, obviously, refugees trying to get away. <sighs> Help me. Help me. Hey, in the days leading up to this whole invasion, there were, pe- there were American journalists over there just blown away that they had hipsters in Ukraine. Just could not fathom the mind reels that they have trendy bars and pubs. As if... <laughs> <laughs> that you know what i'm saying so we
0: so we have people not only okay trying to shit on all the brown people around the world who have been refugees by saying oh well the ukraine well, the ukrainians this is something different mm-hmm. this is something that we should actually pay attention to respond to yeah. we have the issue within ukraine of the anti blackness and this is really Scott what has challenged me these past few days i believe i'm a humanist i believe in the in the in the vitality and the autonomy of all living people i believe that uh, i chant every day for for happiness for all living beings that's the the last of of my uh, silent prayers in in front of my altar that is not changed by what i have seen when it comes to anti blackness in ukraine but it has definitely been challenged i'm sure that you've seen video footage of black folks in ukraine being denied train access being Mm. held up at uh at at border points the anti-blackness is global that's something that we have to name that's one of those ugly truths that we have to acknowledge and as we send support moral support financial support supportive resources to the people over in ukraine during this trying time We have to acknowledge the anti-blackness that's going on and have the nuance of the conversation to understand that race is always going to be a part of the discussion. I don't want to hear people talking about, oh, you're always making this about race. They're making it about race over there by denying these African students exits, by not letting them get on these trains. I had to I had to see what the precedent was. And, uh, and years prior when it comes to this issue. And I found an article on Washington Post. The title is A Cop in Ukraine Said He Was Detaining Me Because I Was Black. I Appreciated It. I'll let y'all read the article. But basically, he talks about this black man talks about when he got to Ukraine, no one would rent him an apartment. He was having all sorts of issues, finding somewhere uh, to to live. And he writes here, certainly, black, let me uh, let me uh, name the writer. This is Terrell Jermaine Star. He writes here, certainly, blacks skin and this is uh, by the way this is from uh what year Two, 2015 So seven years ago, certainly black skin creates hurdles in the United States. Here, racism systemically, but usually covertly, obstructs African-Americans from fully enjoying all the freedoms afforded to white people. But racism in Ukraine was much more blunt, always in my face, unabashed and in plain view. I never had to guess whether a person's remarks carry racist undertones or if an officer's stop was fueled by prejudice. Ukrainians always let me know where I stood with them, good or bad, and I appreciated it. So. As I offer support to Ukrainian people, I also challenge us all to acknowledge and fight against the anti-black racism that exists over there in that country so that we can become better in all ways in more ways than one. Am I supposed to set those things aside, Scott, and go over there and, and shoot a gun or, or post something on Facebook, understanding how I would be treated over there? More likely than not
1: perspective. Yeah, it's
0: it's a very hard conversation. Yeah, it's a very ugly truth, but we have to deal with it. You know, we we said during COVID up during COVID, during the early months of COVID, that crisis doesn't create character. It reveals it. This is what we're seeing in Ukraine. I hope that folks understand that as we talk about those deeply embedded racist structures that we're seeing, excuse me, manifest in crisis. There are other ways that that racism branches out, including in music, that conditioning that we're seeing in these reporters, the way that they report this story, that pro-white conditioning, the racism we're seeing even within Ukraine as their country is being invaded. I mean, you have time to be anti-black and your country is being invaded. That's something different. And that's something that I have to meditate on because it really, really challenges me. Those things manifest in many, many ways, including musically. Seeing people's racism is louder than anything else. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to say the N-word. We just need to see what's out there. So as we continue to critique and make sure that we're challenging racism everywhere it exists, not only in word but in action, we have to do the same in music. Not letting black folks on the train, denying them access X, Y, and Z looks a lot like denying access to certain classical spaces, to saying that something is not classical, it does not deserve to be nominated for this thing, or X, Y, and Z. We shouldn't put it in this genre. All of those things tie back to that anti-blackness that is global prayers to ukraine prayers to the diaspora and prayers to everyone who is trying to figure out how to understand this situation in a better way in a more nuanced way and in a way that's actually going to be consequential prayers for us all see you next week